This episode of the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast is brought to you by the brand new ice cream flavor that's sweeping the nation, Kitty. That's right, Ice Cream Kitty. Ice Cream Kitty away! Now with extra mutagen. Tastes so good, my little ice cream kitty. Side effects may include the death of your actual cat or genetic mutation. (laughs) On second thought, you probably shouldn't buy any of Ice Cream Kitty. Ice Cream Kitty, coming soon to a grocery store near you. Nick, 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 Nickelodeon. From Nickelodeon Studios in Burbank, California, this is the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast. Hey, I'm your host, Hector Navarro. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today, I am very excited to talk to. He is an artist, a director, a writer, a character designer, a storyboard artist, and everything in between. And he's been the executive producer of the current Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle show, the show that just premiered its 100th episode, The Power Inside Her, on Nickelodeon. The show that's been called the best incarnation of the turtles ever. And that compliment was from Kevin Eastman, who, along with Peter Laird, created the Ninja Turtles himself, so it is nothing to scoff at. Our guest has been bringing you one of the funniest, slickest, most action-packed, most emotionally epic animated shows of all time. So let's talk to Ciro Nielli. Amazing! This is like a full-on geek explosion! I say this every once in a while to our guests, but I'm going to try not to geek out on you too hard. Okay, cool. And talking about my own love of the turtles goes back to being a kid. I was born and raised in San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. And I you realized years later, I think there was something subconscious in the turtles that, was, that I was drawn to that I didn't even realize until I was a, an adult, which was this. The Ninja Turtles is an immigrant story. It's a story mm-hmm. about a guy from Japan, from another country, who's raising American teenagers and trying to impart in them something from his culture, something from his mm-hmm. homeland, which my parents are from Latin America. They're from Mexico. And that's, I think, the reason why Splinter ranks as one of my, if not my favorite characters as yeah. well. So, I, You know, I myself, am, I'm not even first generation. I wasn't born here, but I grew up here as an American, feeling that separation between myself and like other white kids. <laughs> You know, my parents, I'm Italian, so, you know, I was raised Italian. I didn't speak English in my house. And so there was this whole thinking of like, well, these kids are, they're not even Japanese-American because they're not allowed to mingle with, you know, Americans on the surface. What they're getting is this sense of ninja code together with Japanese customs and, and culture. And they're getting this uh, refused American pop culture uh, that's finding its way below the surface, which could come from as far back as the 80s, yeah. which I kind of thought worked really well because you you, you kind of want to be aware that there's a bit of a renaissance of the 80s happening when you're doing a Ninja Turtles reboot. But it was really nice to go like, hey, no, it's 2012. Right. I think it was. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, someone threw out this Nintendo Entertainment System and that's what I'm using and my dad's coming to yell at me in Japanese. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, I really wanted to play with the idea early on and this didn't quite come together as much as I wanted it to, but I liked the idea that, and I did this a lot with Sipes, actually, who's Mikey, um, on our downtime when we hang out, was that we were trying to find words that sounded like American slang but came from Japan. Because <laughs> I wanted the turtles to have a different language. That's awesome. Where if you met them, you'd be like, where's this guy from? Right. So you right, have to understand, like, I'm... My parents left Sicily in 1968, moved to London, came to America with me. I was born in London. And then... 
I grew up in a household speaking that Sicilian dialect with them. Yeah. Then I moved from Philadelphia to Los Angeles. Now I go back to Sicily and I'm speaking an Italian dialect that is only spoken by people in their 90s <laughs> through a Philadelphia via LA accent. And they look wow. at me like, this guy's a Ninja Turtle. <laughs> musty pizza, but can't stop playing. But musty pizza, but can't stop playing. For musty pizza! I want to talk about you coming up here in the United States. What kind of stuff as a kid were you into? In the same way that the turtles were absorbing this pop culture, what stuff from pop culture were you drawn to? Well, I, I grew up in a beautiful era of UHF television, <laughs> you know, which I don't think people really understand what that is anymore. Yeah. So Saturday morning, I worked a lot as a kid. I worked for my dad in his pizza restaurant. But Saturday mornings were special where I got to go in late. But I would still, I would wake up probably, I would roll out of bed and get downstairs and roll onto the couch by about 6.30. <laughs> and the cartoons would start. And they would have like these weird cartoons early on, like crazy, like Minute Mouse and Courageous Cat and... Um, and then, you know, Mighty Heroes would come on, like old cartoons. And then, you know, later it'd be Smurfs or whatever. So I would do all my morning run of cartoons. And that would go up until about early afternoon or like late morning. Like, right, right, you'd have breakfast in between. And then the greatest thing would happen. Well, the cartoons would end and I would go from the primetime channels, because that's where they were. Right. Imagine that. Yeah. Over to... <laughs> UHF and then Creature Double Feature would come on mm. and Creature Double Feature would be anything ranging from a universal film from the 30s all the way to the 50s yeah you know your Frankenstein's mummies all the way up into the Creature from the Black Lagoon films and then all the way to even say 60s stuff from Hammer Horror yeah and later stuff even from another studio called Amicus that was a British horror studio. And I would watch this stuff. They play Godzilla films. They play everything. And yeah. I'd watch this stuff. They'd do two movies back to back. And then those would end. And then Kung Fu Theater would start. Oh my gosh. And it would flop back and forth for a while. Kung Fu Theater was first. And then I would watch Creature Double Feature up until dinner. Yeah. All I know is that basically <laughs> it was either Kung Fu or horror up until dinner time. And then I sit and eat dinner in front of the TV and Lawrence Welk was on, which I hated. <laughs> and I was like, to me, Lawrence Welk represented the end of all things fun. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, and it was a time before comic shops and it was a time before comic cons, really. Like, yeah. you know, in Pennsylvania, you wouldn't have a comic con. We, you know, and then <clears throat> as I got older... See, it was a different time. You would watch something on TV and you'd stop and you'd watch the credits and you'd pay attention and you'd be ready and you'd be writing stuff down as yeah. a kid because it would run by and you'd be like, I need to know who that guy is. Because yeah. then you'd take that bit of information and you'd go to the local mall because they would have, um, like the mall near I grew up, like every couple months would have like, it's comic book time. They wouldn't <laughs> even call it like a con and they, and they would set up books in boxes like in the middle of the mall right with guys watching their boxes and you know it'd be like an old heavy guy with a pocket protector and he'd have <laughs> his keys like on a zipper like on a, on a line like chain on his belt and, yeah. and you would go to the guy and you would go hey do you know anything about mario baba and he you know he i saw this horror movie and this woman and, and was a witch and she was bleeding from her face and he'd be like oh and he'd tell you about stuff and you'd write this stuff down because there was no internet. There was nothing. Wow. And you, you'd have to you'd have to document this stuff and keep <laughs> notes and stuff as a nerdy kid. I remember that when the first comic shop near me opened, at this point it was like nineteen eighty three, you know, nineteen eighty two. 
Uh, and my and, and it really came out of the necessity for sports cards. Yes, like you baseball know, you have, trading cards. Yeah, right. Those guys started piggybacking comic books, mm-hmm. and that's where I was going. I was going to this place I think called R and B Collectibles, and it was in Montgomeryville, Pennsylvania, in the middle of a bunch of like fields where they would sell Christmas trees. There would be like a bungalow. <laughs> And the front room of this bungalow house, they sold comic books. And I went in there, and that's actually where I bought the first Ninja Turtles comic. Yeah. The very fir- the first one? The very the first, very first one, one? I bought it off the shelves, yeah. I was oh 10 my years gosh. Old. That is incredible. So you're describing what people had to do before the internet, which is insane. <laughs> and you're also, you're speaking in generality, Ciro. You're saying everybody would be writing this down. Everybody would... No, not everybody. No, not everybody. You were a weirdo. Yeah, I was a weirdo. Huh? So you got the first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Eastman and Laird's Ninja Turtles, black uh-huh. and white. Uh-huh. What what happened to your brain when you read that? Um, it exploded pretty much um, because I felt like it was made specifically for me. It was like this thing that I felt such a kinship towards and familiarity with that I didn't understand how it just materialized. But it was a brand it, new thing. It felt like it was it had always been there. To me, it represented the ability for me to do what I wanted to do, which was to draw comics, it, it gave me um, encouragement in moving forward with that because I didn't have to all of a sudden stand up to these gods like Neil Adams oh, and Carmen Infantino. How can you even do that? Or even the Toast and stuff where they were drawn in this really wonderful old master style that was so perfect yeah. and, and typical of comic art aesthetic at the time. Yes. That as a boy, mm-hmm. I could do it now, but as a, because I'm, you know, older and trained, but mm-hmm. as a boy, that felt like leaps and bounds beyond me. And when I looked at something like Ninja Turtles in those early Mirage days, it really gave me the impression that there's a place, much like there is for independent films or garage bands, yeah, a place for you to go and, and kind of like swing your thing. Yeah. Like to just have your spirit fly and not to care about the, the academia of it yeah. or the criticisms towards it. So you felt spirit, you saw mm-hmm. a soul in that artwork. It was punk rock. I it love was, it. It was literally punk rock. It was a garage, it was a garage band book. Like, yeah. you know, and I love that. Yeah. And, you know, at that time I was started to listen to that music and I started drawing like flyers for bands and stuff. There was a <laughs> there was a place near my house called the Fiesta Motor Lodge Inn. And the Fiesta Motor Lodge Inn was a place where all my friends that were musicians with their crappy bands would play. <laughs> and I didn't get to be in a band, but I got to draw all their flyers. So all those flyers kind of looked a little Eastman and Lairdy. Love so it. So it was all, it felt like that whole world was the same to me. Absolutely. And it was great. You walk around with a Ninja Turtle comic and felt, you felt cooler than everyone else. Yeah. Because you were cooler than everybody else. <laughs> At what point did you call, start calling these guys? Because this is part of your legendary stories that you've told. You started calling Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird to be like, hey, when's my next issue of Ninja Turtles? I'm, I, a, I'm an 11 year old kid. I did that. I did that with the book that they made. They made a book <laughs> that collected issue one through 12 and it was delayed uh, like two years. And I uh, called them like every two weeks because I like, thought that that I was okay. Because I, I got to get a hundred yeah. bucks and I collected like quarters and like <laughs> I mailed it like in an envelope. And like, I oh, so they had your money. They had my money. Okay, it was so then that's fine. You could call <laughs> yeah. them. Yeah. When did you make the decision, I either want to do comic books, I want to do animation, I'm going to be an artist, that's what I'm going to do? 
I kind of had like a little bit of a dice roll. Like I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot as a kid. So by the time I was 12, my eye doctor pretty much said, you have to give that dream up. Right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I was really heartbroken for a long time because uh, um, in my whole childhood, I spent building model airplanes and pretending that I was flying them. Yeah. Um, and then when Top Gun happened, I lost my marbles yeah. too. So, and then that ended almost immediately. And then I decided that I would have a career in forensic medicine and I wanted to be in the FBI. And then by the time I was 16, I started thinking about, you know, what path do I want to take? Do I want to hang out with these kids that are like artists and musicians and be a knucklehead? (laughs) Or do I need to start buckling down and get ready for a life in the FBI? And I, I was taking, I remember I was hanging out with this kid, Tim, who was really into like the Smiths and Morrissey. And he was always trying to get me to go to local colleges and take classes on Saturdays. And I just started going to like taking all these different art classes, like illustration classes. Uh, I started taking animation seminar classes like for summers. Wow. Um, like at 15, 16. Awesome. And, and I just kind of went, you know, it started getting way more in one direction. I decided just to go to art school. And after I came out of art school, you know, I was in Philly and I did well in school. I did really well in school, but then there was no outlet. There's no avenue. It's like in LA, you kind of just go, there's a bunch of avenues. I got to take one and start walking. In Philly, you have to build the road. So I stayed there for a while and uh, I tried to make the best of it. And I ended up just teaching. I was doing freelance work for people. I was like storyboarding. I storyboarded a music video for the Wu-Tang Clan. Awesome. I, um, I, I did like, I was doing like, I was going like door to door offering my services as an animator. No like, way. I animated like used car commercials out of my bedroom. Yeah. Stuff like that. And it would go terribly wrong. Yeah. And it was heartbreaking. <laughs> and it was like for pennies. And I ended up teaching, teaching animation right out of college to associates level kids. So I was actually teaching people in my peer age group. Yeah. But because I had that degree, I was able to. And I did that for years and thinking someday I'll move to California because some of my friends were already out here. At that time, what happened was my dad and mom decided to move back to Italy. And I was about to turn 25, I think. So they moved to Italy. And at that point, I said, well, there's no reason really for me to stay in L.A. So or in Philly. So when they moved to Sicily, they moved back to Sicily. I simultaneously, almost on the day, drove back, drove out to LA with a Volkswagen full of stuff. <laughs> and then uh, That's awesome. just hit the streets. What was the first thing that you started doing in any sort of professional capacity? Do you remember? Oh, I did so many things. Yeah. There were odd things. Uh, <laughs> I came out here and I was living with my friend Monster Man, who's a great guy. So Monster <laughs> Man and I met King Buzzo from the Melvins. Are these and, real people you're yeah. describing? Okay, great. Yeah. King Buzzo, got so it. So the Melvins are this seminal, almost you'd call them punk band, but it was really came out of the Seattle era. And Buzzo, we're huge fans of the Melvins. Seth was doing this thing called Baby Monstrosities, and I was friends with him. And cool. it's basically he would take baby dolls and glue them together and make them into monsters. <laughs> so Buzzo wanted like two-headed monster babies and stuff like that for his tour. So we were doing, I was doing odd jobs like that, like building tchotchkes for him to sell on tour. Wow. And that was really exciting because I felt like, wow, I get to hang out with one, some of my heroes. And then people like Danzig would show up and I would get all freaked out. From that, Buzzo's wife, Mackie, was the art director for Larry Flint Publications. So she started giving me illustration work for Larry Flint magazines. And I guess you can figure out what that means. But Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. So I started drawing really... While I didn't have any money, like I didn't have a real career, I was... I, I could get away with for a day drawing obscene stuff. Yeah. It would get published and it would be a, I would get five hundred dollars 
and my rent was 300 and I would have $200 for the rest of the month. And what I would do is I would just eat one 69 cent green burrito from Del Taco. And that's how I survived. And then the rest of my money went to gas and my Thomas guide. And I would get in my car and I would drive from point A to B looking for animation jobs. I made a book when I was still in Philly of everything I could find on the internet yeah. about animation studios. So yeah. it was like almost like a catalog of places that would do animation. So I, I would drive from one point to another and knocking on doors. And that's kind of how I learned, actually, more importantly, how to drive around Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Which was like mind bending. I had no concept of how yeah. that worked. Like that is it was another... like nothing I ever saw or experienced. Wow. So so yeah, that was how I survived originally. And then there were some dark times. Like I, I ended up working for this guy, Alan. And Alan was this guy who he his fame credit was he he created, he said, but I think he stole <laughs> the the dancing flower or Coke can. You know, that you would see at like Spencer's. So he was like a, a gajillionaire from these things. And yeah. he wanted to start a, this was at the dawn of the web, like boom. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to start a multimedia company. So he hired me as an art director, promised to give me, I think something like $750 a week, mm -hmm. which at the time was like a million dollars. But <laughs> after about two weeks, stopped paying me. As long, along with like maybe like seven or eight other guys. Yeah. So I used to roll with this crew of like skinny, starving guys, <laughs> and we had no food. We were eating like ketchup. Yeah. It was really. It was like all that stuff that you would see Ren and Stimpy do. Yeah. That was that. That was my <laughs> life when I was like twenty five. Eventually, what happened was I got kind of fed up being there, and what I would do is I would just lock myself in my pseudo office and just do animation tests. Yeah. So eventually I did a test for, I did a test for all the studios really, yeah. but one popped and I got hired at Family Guy. Went to Family Guy and Family Guy had like a giant basic like kitchen stocked up. And then I would just <laughs> bring back, I would fill up my car at the end of the night and I would drive back to Pasadena where all my friends were um, imprisoned in this Chinese like welfare camp. Yeah. And then I would feed them all. And like I would do that every day. Pop I did that for a while. and ramen noodles yeah. and did, yeah. 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 And it was great. It was great. Yeah. And then they eventually escaped. Yeah. And they're all doing well, kind of. <laughs> I weighed 130 pounds back then. Wow. Which is probably 50 pounds less than. <laughs> I know. People don't know. You're six foot five. You're a big guy. So yeah. they, if they're listening to this, like, that was very, very thin. Yeah. That's very thin. Yeah. Um, My look, leg weighs 130 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> How did you go from being a starving artist to like, I want to direct shows? I am now directing these shows. Well, there's a thing in between that happened, which was I was storyboarding. Uh, online content i was working for a, a contractor who was doing stuff for a company called the romp and they decided that they didn't want the job anymore so they gave me the full contract so i went from storyboarding an online show to getting this contract that was worth millions to make it myself to make an online cartoon so i started running an animation studio that specialized in flash animation for the web that's and that's super early. That's super, super early. Super early. Yeah. Yeah. This was like early 2000s. 99, 2000. Wow. All, this, all this stuff that I'm talking about happened within 17 months. The starving, the Chinese labor camp, <laughs> starting a studio. I yeah. met a bunch of guys that were ex Spumco because I worked at Spumco for a day. So they Very ran cool. out of work because Weekend Pussy Hunt stopped, which was a John K show. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we just started making this thing called Booty Call, which was horrible. <laughs> um, but we made it really fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I did that and I had this studio and me and a bunch of these Spunko guys decided, well, you know, we're doing this flash stuff and it's getting pretty evolved and amazing. So we should start developing it for television as a, as a, as a business model. Yeah, and at that thing, time yeah. we were going from studio to studio, pitching ourselves as a service house. And I met Marge Dean and all the people at Warner Brothers. 
And they were like, we want to make this show called Mucha Lucha. So we were advising them on how to make a flash show. And then we were also simultaneously friends with Eddie and Lily who created that show. So ultimately what happened was they ended up under bidding us with a Taiwanese studio, okay. which is what always happens. They sure. don't want to... The idea that you want to hire a studio living in LA is, is not fruitful because you have to be in the union and there's lots of costs. So they went with Taipei and then what happened was because we started running out of money as a company, me and like my generals at the studio that I formed mm -hmm. went to go work for Warner Brothers to make Mucha Lucha. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was actually kind of a dark time because it was a failure oh. because I wanted to keep my studio. And while we were kind of splitting our losses and going, hey, but now we finally work in a major studio, it, it really kind of depressed the core friend, the guys that were working for me and myself. Like we felt like we were trying to live the American dream and now we're making a show for Warner Brothers. During that time, I, I had befriended um, Glenn Murakami, who was upstairs working on Justice League. And he would come down and everybody would fanboy on him because he's got such street cred and this cachet with all those great shows that he made that, that we all loved growing up. While everyone else, I think, was really excited to talk to him about you know Batman and how he draws, I just was talking to him about weird stuff, like you know, <laughs> David Lynch movies and stuff. And he has kind of a weird artsy sensibility to him so i think he reacted to that and cool. one day he said to me he said um he goes oh i'm gonna make this show teen titans and we all knew this like i think everybody was clamoring to be a designer or something for him on the show yeah and i kind of tried to play it cool and he said um you know do you want do you think you could direct it for me can you direct and mm -hmm. i went sure why not <laughs> <laughs> have you done that before i go yeah all the time um which is true, kind of, not for television, but <laughs> right. you know, I directed the heck out of the internet and yeah. then I, I had made tons of films in college, you know, like yeah. I actually had been through the filmmaking process in a non-digital sense. Like, you know, so I always worked on 16 millimeters, so I understood filmmaking. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I could direct Teen Titans. Why not? What was the most surprising thing about after you said yes to that, they w as opposed to like what you expected it would be, then what it turned out to be, what was the most surprising? You're like, oh, I did not expect this to happen with directing. Um, actually, it was easier than I thought. Like it, the heart, I, I think what I learned to do really well was to identify the guys that worked for me that were really strong and to cast them to be who they wanted to be. Once I did that, I think I started getting a lot of loyalty from those guys and other guys. Yeah. And they made, they like kind of elevated me and made me look better. Yeah. You know? So, um, and then what I was able to give them was kind of this guidance and, and, and almost, um, a little bit of protection to be themselves. That's great. And, you know, and we would just, and, and we would have, you know, the, the crew of guys that I had back then on Teen Titans were amazing. They were like Alan Wan, Matt Youngberg, um, Ben Jones. They're guys that are basically showrunners, producers, and directors now themselves. Now, yeah. And at the time, I think we would just sit around and just kind of like horse around. Like we would just, we would look at the script and go, how do we disassemble this script and reassemble it so it's still the script, but like make it our own and, and make it as zany and weird as possible. Very cool. Very and, cool. Um, so I think I learned how to do that, how to kind of take something which could be face value and give it a little bit of charm and personality and an extra unique spark. Yeah. And That's I loved awesome. Teen Titans. It was like one of the, you know, coming out of all some of that darker stuff I was talking about and yeah. some of those, what I thought were personal defeats. Um, was really one of the creative high points in my entire life.
What is it that you do as an executive producer? What is it that you do on Turtles? Well, I think, yeah, like you said, everyone does something different. Everyone does something different. But, so I do an extension of what I've always done, which is somehow I've done every job in animation. So mm -hmm. it's world building, really. I'll get a... I'll sit down with Brandon, we'll break a story. Brandon then works with his story team and they get the scripts going and they get the scripts going through all the different stages and that's his jurisdiction. Yeah. And then it comes back to me and then I break it down into sets, designs for characters, designs for vehicles, designs for weapons, which are all kind of called props mm -hmm. and the background sets designs. We design all of that stuff. So I start making notes and sometimes very detailed and finished looking of all those aspects. And it's easier on Turtles because, you know, Brandon was my partner there for a while and we would both know, we we, we share this same mind. Mm -hmm. So totally there's never an issue or a conflict. So, but really what I'm doing is I'm, I'm preparing all this artwork and thinking of it not just as black and white and as architectural designs that need to be built, but as also in color, how they're going to be seen through a lens. Is there weather? What do the effects look like? You're basically world building and seeing the whole thing and then you're giving the next stage of people that are going to work on it which are the storyboard artists the information the tools that they're going to need to set the tone properly gotcha you know and where to be funny and what references to look at and all that and yeah. then it gets boarded while it's getting boarded we simultaneously start building all the elements yeah you start building all we in cg we start modeling the characters we start modeling the sets then they go off and do all their things within that rigging lighting sure. texture and then uh, the board gets done and hopefully now you're managing that the board is going to work with the designs, how mm -hmm. they came out. And a lot of times there's, there's time issues, like it's too long. So now you're cutting animatics three, four, five times to get them right so that you can ship them to your overseas studio. The overseas studio then also needs men, uh, you know, direction for animation, yeah. the tone, the same way you gave it to the storyboard artist. Ultimately, the stuff comes back, and then I go through through post production. And wow. post production is I'm now I'm talking to Sebastian, who's our composer, about what direction to go with the music. Cool. And I'm spotting for sound effects. I'm sitting with Jeff Schiffman and his guys at this place around the corner called Boombox, where we do the sound effects. Mm -hmm. And eventually, we mix it, and I go through all that post with them. And that's wow. that to me is my favorite part, where I really feel like a filmmaker. You know, I, I think this show transcends the 22-minute format, and it definitely transcends kids' cartoon Absolutely. and kids' entertainment. So Absolutely. I try to kind of play things, um, you know, for moments and to make them really cinematic. So that really comes together in the final post stage when you start putting the music and the sound effects. And the mix can do a lot to manipulate how something comes across. Yeah. Because um, it can come across very generic or... What I like to do is to make things very subjective, you know, mm -hmm. from a, from an auditory standpoint. I, I, I love sound design. So, yeah, that's what I do as a showrunner. The other thing that I have to do occasionally is, you know, massage personalities and stuff <laughs> because they're artists. Sure. And while I am one, too, I also kind of walk this management line. And, you know, a lot of those guys can come and talk to me and they feel a little bit more comfortable. Because you have that artist background. Because yeah. Because you're one of them. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and they'll fight or, you know, whatever. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff happens. Yeah, totally. Somebody gets a crush on someone and gets their feelings <laughs> or it gets weird. <laughs> It sounds like uh, it sounds high like uh, it sounds like high school. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 
curious about the pitch for Teenage Mutant uh-huh. Ninja Turtles. How did you hear about the project? How did you get involved? And what was that pitch like? It seems like all you had to do really was pitch yourself. Here was my Saturday mornings. This is what I would watch. <laughs> it's kind of what ultimately happened. Yeah. But yeah, I was at, I, at the time I was at Warner Brothers and um, I was doing shorts there, mm-hmm. like random little things. I did a Super Friends thing. Yeah. I did these Batman bumpers for this online game. And it was, it was really fun. Sam Register called it Batman Special Projects. And that's mm-hmm. what I like to call that department, which was just me in a room. Uh, <laughs> but I felt like it wasn't really a job. It was jobs that were finite that would come and go, and they were short. Sure. So I needed a gig gig. Yeah. And uh, I got the trades that day. There was a day where the trades came in, and I looked at it, and it was like Viacom buys Ninja Turtles, which made sense. So All I, of Ninja Turtles. Yeah. 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 So I called my manager, and I said, set up a meeting. And he goes, <laughs> sure, we can do that. And naively... I walked in thinking, I know everybody in animation, which I kind of do, at least in TV animation. Sure. I know who's out there, at least. And and I thought, well, you know, given with who I know is working and who is not working, there's maybe, I can count on my hand, on one hand alone, the, the few people that could probably do this. Yeah. So I'm a shoo-in. I kind of <laughs> felt that way because it's TV animation. And I didn't yeah. know how much they were putting behind it. So they were putting so much behind it here at Nick. And to me, it was just another show mm-hmm. in terms of scale. At the same time, you have to understand that like, I had been a huge Turtles fan as a kid, and I had been going, bouncing around from one job to another, always feeling bad that I didn't get to work on it. Yeah. Like a new version would pop up, and I would yeah. say to myself, there's another one I don't get to be a part of. Yeah. Um, I wish I could have. It wasn't so much, I don't like that. It was, damn, I wish I could have worked on it. To the point where I even would go see, like I went to go see Kevin Monroe's 2007 film and I actually liked it. Like yeah. I sat, I remember sitting in the theater alone on a Saturday afternoon and it was kind of empty and going like, I was geeking out. So I came in and basically there was this guy Burke here, uh, Burke Rawlings, who was great. And he, and he said, all right, well, what do you got? And I said, I'm your guy. I can do this. And he yeah. went, sure you are. Because uh, <laughs> everyone says that. Yeah. And I went, wait, what? And, uh, he goes, and then he said, I remember he said, uh, why don't you come back? When you're ready and prove to me why you're the guy. Wow. Yeah. He was like kind of kind of cold and ballsy like that. And yeah. I, I kind of left and I was like, I took it as a personal challenge. Yes. Um, and I came back, I think almost exactly three weeks later. It was right around this time. I remember it might have been, it was like October 22nd when I went in for that pitch. And I had presented to him on, I think I had six boards, giant black foam core boards, probably like 18 by 24 I made this artwork, I blew it up and I glued it to these boards and yeah. I presented it to him. And it was it was basically images of it was a group shot of the turtles that I first one I ever drew. It was a shot of the turtles in the lair kind of horsing around. Mm-hmm. It was a shot of each of the turtles hanging out with April on one board. So the different interactions that they and how they would work with her and what capacity. Yeah. And then it was three boards that I felt like laid out the dynamics of the action component of this show. Yes. And one was Turtles versus sci-fi terror, kind of, which was an mm-hmm. illustration of the Krang. Mm-hmm. Turtles versus like monsters, and then uh, the martial arts element. I just drew kind of like the Foot Clan. Awesome. So as a pitch, I could go, this is how they have fun, and this is what it looks like when it's action. And and I think Burke looked at it and went, okay, cool, I get it. You're the guy. Yeah. And then he also, I remember I did a lot towards developing april i had this really keen idea of how i wanted april to come across and i really liked her i thought i really loved that movie the royal tenenbaums and i liked the idea of her being like the character that Gwyneth patro played uh, margo yeah who was this girl that bounced around new york city and was so smart and knew so much about everything and was beyond hip that 
that I thought that the turtles would like her that like a lot. Yeah. And, and at the time, the pitch was different than the show is. Really? Um, yeah, because the the show was really um, it was almost like a new chapter. It was really the way I was seeing it. So it was this idea of why, if I'm presenting Ninja Turtles to children who don't know what Ninja Turtles are, right? How would they really learn? who the Ninja Turtles are. And I thought, well, they would come out of the sewers. Yeah. So I, I looked for a moment where the turtles would reveal themselves and come out of the sewers, which I thought would be the death of Splinter. You know, the show starts with Splinter dying, feeling this emotional void and this need for change. The turtles come out of the surface, come to the surface, and mm -hmm. the first person they meet is April. Yeah. And April becomes this emotional surrogate for them that teaches them about our world. Yeah. So she really played this part where she had a strong interaction with each of the four turtles and taught them a little bit about our world. And they learned, you know, how to fit into that. So the mm -hmm. show was a little different. Um, so she was huge. And then I remember... Uh, Burke actually going like, well, tell us about the turtles. Why are the turtles special? And I just didn't know what to tell them. Yeah. Because I was like, no, they they are as they always have been. Yeah. So a lot of what I did was to redesign and change April because I didn't want to change the turtles. I felt like the turtles should have been untouched. April, you're back! What up? I never got a chance to tell you guys that I'm sorry for everything. You're sorry, but we were the ones that screwed up. It was an accident, and more importantly, you're my friends. I don't ever want to hold a grudge ever again. You the best, April. To mark this day, I offer you the slice of eternal reunion. It has lint and dead bugs all over it. I know. I just found it under my bed. It's eternal. Normally, this has been a very sort of marketed to and for boys property since mm -hmm. we were kids. Did you guys know going into it that it was going to be something that was going to draw this young girl, this female uh, side of the audience? Or was that something that was like a surprise to you guys? No. I, well, I mean, I don't know who thought what, but I never had any uh, misconception that it would just be a boy show. I've always worked on properties that had I, I dare to say more of a girl following than boy absolutely. following so. absolutely teen titans great example teen titans yeah. was huge and the show that i created at disney super robot was yeah was, i get all my fans are girls on that show for some reason yeah <laughs> i don't know it's just maybe it's cute i don't know but like i i maybe i have some sensibility that attracts teenage girls in my storytelling i have no <laughs> idea but like that's like so it was really important to me when i started doing turtles that I saw April like the fifth turtle to the yes. point where I put a five on her t-shirt. And her evolution as a character throughout the series awesome. has been awesome. And earlier this year at Comic-Con, you guys premiered this great April episode. Was that City at War? I think yeah, it was, it yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. basically the turtles come back from space and here's April graduating to a level of Kunoichi. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was great. What has it been like to see the fan reaction? From that's season always, to season to season. That's always nice. Yeah. Yeah, they've been pretty good to me. In the <laughs> beginning, I think they're all like, why has Donatello got gap teeth? And yeah. <laughs> why is there three toes on them? And I was just like, uh. And then uh, they, after a while, I started going like, oh, this show's awesome. Yeah. I mean, they really just took to it really well. Because I think, you know, I don't blame them. Sure. I, I think, you know, they really care about something and they really love it. And it means something really deep and real to them. It, it, yeah. it, it represents something real in their lives. And, and to go like, this guy is the guy now that's, that's going to be in charge of my childhood. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't help but hate his face. <laughs> and it was like, I had to, I, I had to get through that. You know, it was like, the, yeah. that was, that was year one. Yeah. 
you know did but you it's have been a, like eight years did you <laughs> did you have a moment where you're like i oh, mean i got it this would like this was the thing to let you know oh okay uh i'm good to go no i never had a i never not had that attitude awesome people awesome. would say to me like oh it's a big responsibility are you worried and i just never thought about it that way did you have any direction because this is a property again this is a big property that these big companies are investing a lot of of their time and money into where they going the turtles needs to be this 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 and this we need to hit this 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 and this no it wasn't like that so much awesome it was really nice. Yeah. It was Burke totally having faith in me, but knowing how to manage me, I think he definitely guided me. And it was more of a, it was, I want to make sure you're doing something that you're happy doing, but this has to be different. Um, it, it was like kind of a really high creative time. Like I, I was alone in an office and Burke would say, all right, by Saturday or by Friday, we want to see the splinter. And I would just churn out pages of concept designs. Yeah. And I was just in that room alone. Yeah, and I and I, I remember I plastered the walls with all the covers from every Kevin and Peter book, and beyond that, I would plaster all these images that I liked from, um, you know, I created almost like a look look wall, like a lookbook wall. Like yeah. I, I pulled images from all the different Ray Harryhausen films that I liked, things that I thought were stop motion puppets, yeah. and how I thought things where I thought here's something that's not real, that's a puppet, but the lighting or whatever made it feel the way I would want turtles to look. So I was surrounding myself with all that and I would just sit in this room and just draw, 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 draw. I have to ask you about the choreography of the show. Uh -huh. the, the, choreo fight the fight choreography yeah. is next level. It is so good. Is that something that you give to the board artists? Not do anymore. You, not anymore. Do you guys literally play with action figures to figure this stuff out? How does it? How uh, do you guys do it? Okay, first of all, I have generals that are my guys since day one. Yes. And we know, we understand what fight choreography needs to be the point that we never discuss it so much anymore mm. when i started this show i was working with my two co-eps uh josh and jennifer who josh of the two he studied in bujitsu which is japanese fighting arts awesome. it's not sports martial arts it's, it's literally it's basically what is ninjutsu so we started going with him to his dojo once a week, myself, the directors, and the story artists, we were going for a long time. We would go every week, and we would get seminars on ninjutsu. Mm -hmm. So we took hundreds of hours of video, and we would sit in a dojo and get our asses handed to us <laughs> by a guy named Sensei Minj, who was a scary individual. <laughs> and he would like take you and just put your arm in a lock, and you lay on the ground crying. <laughs> and the one thing you learn when you start training, the stuff that is real... And that is very effective. Yes. Doesn't look like anything on camera. It doesn't look like it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's other stuff that if you did it, you would actually kill a person immediately. Yes. So like, <laughs> so then, you know, you have to be kind of creative. And then that's where I came in and I kind of decided like, look, and some guys do it better than others. And okay. this was a huge point of contention with the story crew. And this is why there's a lot of revisions in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now it kind of is good. It's working out really well, but it took yeah. a long time to get there. And what it was is these guys you shouldn't be watching them and feeling like you're watching a fight. These guys are on such a different level that it should look like a dance. Yes. And it should, you know, it should look like you're watching Michael Jackson on the Grammys in like 1985. And, and it, it should and be, and they each should do it differently. Absolutely. And for, for, for kids who don't know what that meant, for people that <laughs> doesn't understand that historical reference, he did the moonwalk for the first time. Right. And, and people's magic. brains blew out of the back of their heads. Right. It was magic. Yeah. So I, I really like when, and there's a couple guys that do it exceptionally well. Yeah. And ladies. I, I gotta also give a 
always shout out that my, my storyboard crew is primarily composed of the most dangerous drawing chicks I've ever met in my life. <laughs> they are awesome. Within that realm of women, I have Sheldon Vella, <laughs> who, is, who lives in Australia, and he is amazing. He's the guy who knows the dance. Awesome. Yeah. So, like, you know, we were looking for that. We, we didn't want it just to be like, I get really tired. I left superhero shows because I didn't want to ever make another men in tights punching, kicking show. Yeah. I find it terribly dull. Yeah. I can, I myself can only take 50, like, you know, 30 seconds of a fight scene before I tune out. And mm -hmm. I know that like, you know, especially with a female audience, like they don't really care about that. It's, it's the idea that leads you to the fight. Yes. And the resolve that's more important than the actual fight itself. So if you actually are going to have a fight, it has to be interesting. And, you know, in addition to it feeling like a waltz or something, I, I started because I wasn't, I don't have the man hour capacity to actually just draw the fights myself. Right. I, can, I, I can only rely on the board artists. One of the things that I would do would be design these sets that would allow almost like these, they're almost like giant sets that you would build for like a dance number in like an old MGM musical. Like cool. I, I would make sure that the sets would basically almost be like a sandbox that the board artists could play in. Awesome. So you they know, would have like levels and they would have dynamics different things to, that just yeah. were interesting. Yeah. Like if you go over here, you're going to get burned. This teeters and totters. Wow. You can go under this and over that. And have you designed an action figure playset? I feel like they would love you. Well, if, they, well, I mean, I've designed our own, like I've done roughs for almost every single set that you've seen in these 125 episodes, <laughs> but I don't know that, you know, they, we live in a different age where playsets don't get made anymore. That's kind of true. Yeah. It's yeah. not, but I, I love, I love playability and I love toys and yeah. function. I love Rube Goldberg. So there's a yeah. lot of that in there that I think also makes the fights more interesting. Yes. Lighting, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that makes our fights cooler and, you know, we're lucky that it's CG too. Yeah. You know, because that, you know, the camera can move, changes everything. Yes. Oh, dang. We got some trespassing turtles up in here. Surprise, turtle freaks. This time, we squashes you heads like the blueberries. Four turtles versus two complete morons. We got this. Can you let us know anything about season five? Season five was an opportunity for us to do a little bit of storytelling that didn't necessarily need to feel chronological. Okay, great. It also f was a, a chance for us to kind of jump all over the place and do bigger, weirder things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's really awesome. I love season five. Season five, a lot of the formatting is different. We do some three-parters and awesome. some four-part stories. Awesome. Which is very different. And yeah. I think a lot of them are going to get packaged as DVD specials. Okay, as great. As well as just airing as half hours on television. I want to tell you something so bad. <laughs> I think it's better if I just make you guys wait, but I will say that uh, towards the end, Usagi Yojimbo shows up. <gasps> yeah. Oh, man. That I can't is say awesome. that. I'm allowed to say that. Okay, so. great. Okay, great. And it's amazing. Oh, my gosh. I love that so much. Because I can't for wait. me as a film fan, I just got to have Tashira Mafuni in my show. Yeah. Yeah, we just put literally... I have a rab I have Tashira Mafuni dressed as a rabbit for three episodes, <laughs> and it's just awesome. You know, oh it's, my gosh it's, it, we go full kurosawa oh it's good man. and it's nice to see the turtles in that world i love it i love that the turtles can go to any world yeah. and they've been to so many yeah. different worlds in your show already and that's what i love about these characters that's what i love about this franchise zero oh my gosh i feel like we could keep talking I and know, keep we going could, huh? we could we absolutely could but uh we're we're, we're rounding up to the end here i just want to thank you so much for yeah. all of your work and for your passion and for telling us about uh uh, uh your first little bit of time in la which was uh -huh. hilarious and sad 
bad, but now you're okay and better. <laughs> I, liked it. I had fun the whole time. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, man. Um, we're gonna have to have you come back. This was so much fun. Yeah. So thanks again, Sierra. Yeah. That was awesome, dude. You're welcome. I had fun. Thanks, uh, everybody listening. Thank you, Turtle fans, for watching. And um, don't be too sad at the end of season four. <laughs> It'll be okay. Well, guys, listen, I know I say it every single week, but really, we could have gone for another hour. That was so much fun. Big thanks to Sierra Nielli for coming in and talking turtles and everything in between with us, and I mean literally everything in between. Be sure to go to nickanimationpodcast.com for a bunch of awesome extra stuff. Did I mention that it's awesome? Including, you may be able to see some never-before-seen footage from the pilot animatic to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles all the way back from 2012. It's rad, so check it out. Thanks to the awesome crew who puts this podcast together. This podcast is produced by Jonathan Highlander Dana Vasquez Eberhardt Kelly Smith Andrew Hubner Original music by Useful Creatures This week's episode edited by Jonathan Highlander Josh Caldwell All of the incredible social media for our podcast is made by Narbe Manassians Sammy Armiger David Watson And thanks to the man who works at controls and makes me sound better than I have a right to Manny Gralva Until next time, thanks for listening to the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast and keep watching cartoons Cartoons